The cover of the Sunday Times, just over a week ago, ran an arresting headline. Revealed, the truth about the peers who are born to rule. Britain is the only country uh, in the world besides Lesotho that has positions in Parliament reserved for its hereditary chieftains. It's completely anachronistic, outrageous and undemocratic. Who should be allowed to sit in a modern House of Lords and does it need to be quite so big? 800 members or something? You know, this is ridiculous. Uh, everybody agrees it's ridiculous. But also, pretty well everybody agrees that we need a broader constitutional settlement. Is it time to stop and rethink the way British democracy works? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today... Peer pressure. Is it time to reform the House of Lords? The fanfares, the carriages, the crown. Amid the pomp and pageantry of the state opening of Parliament, we can also see the workings of the British political system laid bare. Speaker, the Queen commands this Honourable House to attend Her Majesty and the House of Peers immediately. The democratically elected Commons are invited into the grandeur of the Second Chamber, the House of Lords. Seated on a gold throne, the Queen sets out the government's agenda. The monarch, surrounded by the peers of the realm. They include the Lords Spiritual the bishops and archbishops who represent the Church of England, and the Lords Temporal, so the law lords who represent the judiciary, the life peers appointed by politicians, and the hereditary peers, those who are born to rule. This, in 2021, is still the beating heart of the British state. The House of Lords operates as a steady hand on the tiller of British democracy, scrutinising legislation passed by the House of Commons. We're not the only country to have a second chamber that provides that kind of check and balance, but we are the only country where the second chamber is larger than the first. With 800 members, including 92 hereditary peers, it's the second largest legislature in the world, second only to China, a country with a population 20 times as big as Britain's. So is the House of Lords too bloated? Does it represent us as a country? Is it time to look at reform? The Sunday Times certainly thinks so and has turned its attention to the role of the hereditary peers. We should probably start by saying they are a bunch very much unlike modern Britain, I think it's fair to say. We've talked about how they are all men, but 47% of them went to Eton, a single school. It's absolutely staggering. Between them, they own about 170,000 acres of land. It's roughly or nearly half the size of Greater London. Tom Calver is a senior data journalist at the Sunday Times, one of the number crunchers whose tables and graphs help us to make sense of the news. 
in terms of ancestry, if you add up the length of time that each of them has uh, sat in the House of Lords and their ancestors as well, you get to something crazy like 19,000 years. And I think it's something that we wanted to get across when we put all of those faces on the front page of the Sunday Times. We wanted to kind of express this idea that they are not like modern Britain. We started off from the premise that this is one of those great political topics that is hiding in plain sight. Gabriel Pogrand is the Whitehall correspondent at the Sunday Times and co-authored the Sunday Times reports on hereditary peers. It's a neglected corner of the British Constitution, the fact that we have 92 places, as it stands, indefinitely reserved for people who've inherited titles from their father, whose own ancestors were accorded a baronetcy or an earldom or a dukedom or a viscountcy many centuries ago under kings and queens of times gone by. And this anachronism was primarily abolished in the late 90s, but it still exists in the form of these 92. And Tom and I thought they deserved some further journalistic inquiry. We wanted to find out who they are, what they do and why they're there. I mean, it's, it's sort of easy to say that, oh, it's just an accepted part of our British uh, constitution. We brought Tom and Gabriel together for a chat about their investigation. To give you a sense of how unusual it is, Britain is the only country uh, in the world besides Lesotho that has positions in Parliament reserved for its hereditary chieftains. So that's how unusual our current system is. In terms of democratic models, <laughs> that's quite a curious one. It's really interesting that you said it's hiding in plain sight. Everybody knows it's there. Why do you think it gets so little attention now? These two words are probably going to put you to sleep, but constitutional reform ain't a sexy topic. It has been... <laughs> neglected perpetually by governments. And Baroness Hayter, Labour's deputy leader in the Lords, actually used this metaphor. She said there's this kind of drip, 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 where the ludicrousness of the system, it doesn't have an immediate impact, but it has kind of degraded and undermined the authority of the chamber over the decades. But it sure as hell hasn't changed very much. It's interesting that you say constitutional reform isn't sexy because it has been a major front page spread in the Sunday Times with your pieces. So what are you hoping they'll achieve? What do we think, Gabriel? <laughs> I said it's not sexy. I mean, it is becoming more interesting because of some of the political issues of the day. We've got a secessionist Scotland that looks increasingly unstoppable, kind of move for independence. You've got Boris Johnson, who's flirted with moving the Lords to the north. There are lots of reasons why reforming the Lords to make it more representative more democratic has become more interesting and higher priority over the last year. Everybody kind of agrees in principle that the Lord should be reformed. Even Boris himself has said there should be a smaller chamber, but it hasn't stopped him appointing dozens of political donors, friends, and indeed his own brother to that particular chamber. Now, I want to take you both, uh, as John Major would put it, back to basics, because we don't really educate people very much about our political system, and I think we assume everyone understands. So just explain, what is it that the House of Lords do the House of Lords is not a very powerful chamber relative to the House of Commons. We've had a principle, so-called Salisbury Convention, and the principle of it is that the House of Lords cannot oppose the second or third reading of any government legislation promised in its election manifesto. It is not there to define the legislative agenda of the day, and if ever there's an instance in which the House of Lords threatens to block something central to the government's agenda in the House of Commons... Um, the House of Commons basically threatens to abolish it. It doesn't define necessarily the legislative agenda in our country, 
but it can change laws and they can vote on laws and they can reinterpret and redefine the scope of laws and they can also send amendments back down to the House of Commons whereupon they can be voted through. So it's not an insignificant thing, but it is the upper chamber, but it's a secondary chamber. But, you know, as we've explored, these lords have considerable power to vote on things and to lobby things and to ask ministers about things that that matter to them. Tell us a bit about the, the breakdown of the membership of the House of Lords. So you've got about 800 lords at the moment. Now, there were about 1,300 before Tony Blair got rid of most of the hereditaries, and it fell to about 600 or so. Now it's crept back up in the past few years to about 800. Within those 800, you've got 85 sitting hereditary peers. There are four or five vacancies at the moment. That's why we're a few short of the full 92. There's a handful of avenues for becoming a member of the House of Lords. One of them, the Sobrits Bar article, is that you're born into it. This concerns the 92 hereditary peers. The second is that you're appointed to it. That's what we refer to as life peers. These are appointed with the consent of the Queen, but it's overseen by political parties. Every party is usually kind of accorded the right to appoint a certain number of lords to the chamber. Parties can choose people who've done great public service or excelled in their field, whatever that may be, whether it's business, politics, arts or sport. But more controversially, we've often seen the list include people who've simply donated large sums of money to political parties or who happen to be friends of political leaders. Or, and this is now getting into the real kind of niche area of British constitutional life, because we are a constitutional monarchy, because church and state are kind of enmeshed in how our country is governed and how laws are made, there is still a role for bishops. So there's uh, automatically a certain number of Church of England bishops who are in the chamber at any one time, and that owes to the Queen's role as head of church as well as head of the British state. The number of hereditary peers is currently fixed. So when one dies, there are internal elections to choose a replacement. Those are actually suspended at the moment due to coronavirus. So there are about four or five vacancies at the moment. As well as the new Lord Speaker elections, there's an opportunity now to sort of either think, do we continue keeping these by-elections paused and just allow the number to... uh, wither away, uh, to, to quote one of the speaker candidates, or do we actively continue them and replenish the number of hereditary peers? So I guess for that reason as well, it felt topical and the right time to look at it again. And why is it so hard to reform? Why is it so hard to sort of cut the number? Why do successive prime ministers talk about it and do nothing? I suppose a number of reasons, really. I think that as we saw when we were looking into the attempts to reform it, Lord Grocott, who is a Labour peer, who is on the third time of trying now, he's trying to introduce a bill that will um, end the by-elections to stop hereditary peers from passing on their titles. But each time that he brings in this bill, there are a couple of lords in particular who introduce so many of these wrecking amendments. It's tabling loads and loads of corrections and amendments so that the actual reading of the bill takes so much time that it basically runs out of time and can't pass. So that there are all these kind of tricks that are used to slow down Lord's reform. I know, I assert, that what's been happening is a clear abuse of the procedures of this House. Bills which have overwhelming support are not going to reach the statute book. 
So it's an interesting one. If you asked a lot of members of the British public and a lot of politicians, would you reform the House of Lords? They'd all probably say yes. But the realities of actually doing so are much more complex. Just to offer listeners a little bit of history, up until 1999, when there were 1,300 peers in the upper chamber in the House of Lords, the vast majority of them were hereditary peers. Tony Blair pledged to abolish them. A bill will be introduced to remove the right of hereditary peers to sit and vote in the House of Lords. It will be the first stage in a process of reform to make the House of Lords more democratic and representative. But part of the cost of doing business with the Conservatives who dominated the chamber was that they would be allowed to retain some of these peers. And they actually had uh, a popularity contest where the 92 most well-liked, or, you know, the 92 who were deemed to be most appropriate to stay along were retained. And Blair promised there would be this second phase of reform. We've got, we were looking at news articles, Tom and I, from a time in which Derry Irvine, who was one of Blair's chief negotiators in terms of getting House of Lords reform, said it was fanciful to think that hereditary peers wouldn't be abolished in their totality by the end of the parliament. That was then. Uh, this is now. They're still there, despite the best efforts of various people in the Labour Party. And actually, Jack Straw, the Home Secretary at the time, who was in a cabinet meeting where Blair announced the kind of final compromise whereby 92 peers would be retained, said that he didn't think it was much of a compromise. Everybody around the Labour cabinet table was apparently pretty miffed-looking. His assessment was that Labour at the time had this kind of gargantuan majority, having won a landslide in 1997, and that they basically should have pressed the nuclear button or threatened to press the nuclear button, um, deriving from the aforementioned Salisbury Convention. Ah, we've mentioned it before, but here's a quick reminder. The Salisbury Convention ensures that the House of Lords can't block any legislation that comes from the government's manifesto pledges, so those that the country has already voted on. And Labour had pledged to reform the House of Lords and remove hereditary peers in their manifesto. So the government could have used that convention. If you want to block this, we're just going to have to consider pulling the rug from under your feet and abolishing you. It didn't happen that way. I think that Blair, for all of his interest in modernising politics in the country, didn't particularly care about modernising politics at Westminster, or at least he wasn't prepared to be maximalist in his aims. He thought, I need to get something through. So he settled for this notion of keeping some of the hereditaries. And then there was going to be this promised second phase of reform where they would look at other aspects of the constitution, devolution, parliament itself, how power is devolved and where it lies in our country. But the words didn't match the reality. It fizzled out, they got bored and they moved on. Hello? Hello, um, it's Manveen from The Times. Oh, Manveen, how are you? How nice to hear you. The reason Blair's attempts to reform the Lords were frustrated and ended in the compromise of keeping 92 hereditary peers really came down to the negotiating skills of one man. The leader of the Conservatives in the House of Lords at the time, Robert Gascoigne Cecil. He was Viscount Cranbourne back then. He's the seventh Marquess of Salisbury now. And his family has been shaping our constitution for five centuries. That all-important Salisbury Convention 
is named after his grandfather. Lord Salisbury has retired from Parliament now, but I gave him a ring to find out what he thinks of the current situation. Well, I think where I am at the moment is I'd abolish their lordships. Altogether? Altogether. You really are radical. Take us back to... Take us back to that point when there was last reform of the House of Lords and the Blair Initiative. What was your thinking then, and how did that deal come about? Tony Blair had in his manifesto an undertaking to reform the House of Lords and to begin by abolishing the right of hereditary peers to sit. And that would be phase one. Phase two would be a more thoroughgoing reform of their lordships, which would take an unspecified form. So I was leader of the opposition in the House Lords at the time, was deeply suspicious that if you abolish the right of hereditaries to sit, that it would stick there because, one, nobody would be able to agree on how to reform their lordships. Two, the House Commons would not like to see a more powerful and legitimate House of Lords effectively detracting from its own power. And thirdly, of course, the government finds nominated House a wonderful source of patronage, and a reformed house would remove that patronage. So what you would have if you had a stage one house and and it got stuck there would be a house which lost more and more respect because it increasingly was filled by the leaders of the party's nominees with some obviously very distinguished people. Cronies, as we'd call them now. Cronies, we call them. (laughs) Uh, And secondly, you'd have a house whose size got... Um, bigger and bigger. And that's exactly, of course, I'm very rarely right about anything, but I was right about that, which was that's exactly what happened. What do you make of the current situation? My idea at the time was I had a slogan saying no stage one without stage two. And when I did a deal with Derry and, and Blair, which was then rejected by the shadow cabinet, and then I went ahead regardless after they basically changed their minds, And my thought was that if you had as many hereditaries left as possible, because there was obviously no consensus for the continuance of the hereditaries and they didn't really have public support, that it would be, I think my phrase at the time was, this would be the grit in the shoe as a constant reminder that stage one was leaving reform unfinished, that it was unfinished business. And actually that's proved right too, because you look at the Sunday Times, they clearly feel that it's very unfinished business. But what I don't want is I don't want to lose the hereditaries without more thoroughgoing reform of the House of Lords and preferably a pathway established to a more thoroughgoing constitutional reform all round. That's Mm. the reasoning behind it. In 2011, more than a decade after Tony Blair's attempts to reform the House of Lords, another party leader, newly in power, tried to have a go. Nick Clegg, as the junior member of the coalition government that lasted between 2010 and 2015, he tried to take up this mantle again. And it was one of those things which also unravelled. Clegg claimed that Cameron had committed to doing something and then stabbed him in the back or the front and basically said, we're just not going to do it anymore. And I think there are lots of moments where the coalition agreement could have unravelled. This just wasn't one of them. There was no way he was going to blow up the whole agreement based on whether or not the House of Lords was reformed. Lord Grocott singles out two peers for blocking recent attempts to reform the Lords. 
The numbers of amendments that are down are entirely, almost entirely, the responsibility uh, of uh, Lords Keith Ness and um, Treff Garn. These two peers, Lord Treff Garn and the Earl of Keith Ness, both of them Conservative hereditaries, they have perpetually filibustered and blocked any attempts to reform the current situation. And something which Lord Grocott says, something which a lot of hereditary peers say, is if we were actually given a vote on this, there is no doubt that we would say we would be the turkeys voting for Christmas. We can never get to that vote because of the obstruction of the two hereditaries in question. And also, we're not going to leave in the meantime. We're not going to kind of make martyrs of ourselves and basically bequeath the entire institution to Conservatives for an undetermined period of time. I spoke to um, an Earl, L. Clancarty. His given name is Nick, Nick Trench. He's a self-employed artist and editor, not the profession that hereditary period necessarily evokes, but he said he would favour uh, an elected Senate. But it just isn't going to happen as long as it is filibustered by these two peers and as long as the government itself doesn't back it. And just to finish this off effectively, what is needed is the government needs to give this legislative time. It needs to throw its own weight behind this. And at that point, the strategy of wrecking amendment would effectively melt away. Coming up, we look at the scandal of lobbying in the Lords and potential solutions to the constitutional mess we're in. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Calls for the urgent reform of the House of Lords have only grown louder as we begin to tot up the cost of peers to the public purse. 
We sort of ended up going through a lot of parliamentary data on things like expenses and so on. So what we found is that hereditary peers actually cost more on average compared to life peers. That's interesting. Why is that? The why is a bit complicated. We'll start, go back to basics. So if you're in the House of Lords, as well as the privilege of obviously being able to vote on legislation and participate in debates, you get given a uh, daily allowance of about £320 uh, a day. As well as that, some of the Lords can claim travel expense. So we've added all of these expenses up going back several years to 2001. Um, we found that the entire hereditary peerage system had cost about £50 million in that time. Another thing we wanted to look at was whether the taxpayer is getting value for money with all this. So we analysed a number of different measures looking at things like their spoken contributions, the number of written questions that they ask. And what we actually found was that even though they cost more, they're actually speaking less in the chamber. Uh In the past five years, the average life peer made about 80 speeches in the chamber, but the average hereditary made just 50. The data seems to suggest that actually the taxpayer is not really getting the value for money when it comes to hereditary peers. Gabriel and Tom's story included an online chart which allows readers to find out more about hereditary peers, from the schools they attended to the amount of land they own and how long the seat has been in the family. The data is really intriguing. The land thing really struck me because they own a seriously large (laughs) quantity of it and and the number of lords with castles is quite extensive as well. And of course, land ownership is incredibly secretive. It was hard work to try and work it all out. You know, through various sources, we were able to gather about 170,000 acres worth of land that we knew that each of them owned. So an absolutely enormous chunk of the British Isles, basically equivalent to two Isle of Wight or about half of Greater London. Another thing that really surprised us was just in terms of some of the ways in which they operate that maybe you couldn't get away with in the House of Commons. So, for example, quite a few lords are engaged in or are interested in things like tobacco and lobbying on behalf of firms with slightly questionable practices, uh, some might argue. Now, in the House of Commons, where everyone is elected, you can't really get away with that to the same extent because I think there's much more scrutiny. But in the House of Lords, there seem to be plenty of peers who just perhaps, should we say, got away with shareholdings in all sorts of businesses and effectively lobbying on their behalf. So it's a very surprisingly shady part of Parliament, I think we'd both agree. Tell us a bit about that. Give us an example. You know, what was the example that shocked you the most of a peer who seems to be doing that without any kind of accountability or oversight? My name is Adrian Palmer. I'm an elected hereditary crossbench peer in the House of Lords and I've been involved in the food industry literally all my walking life. The one that jumps to mind is Lord Palmer. Viscount Palmer, or or I guess we can go for either. (laughs) You mustn't demote him. No, we we mustn't. (laughs) So he was the heir to a family biscuit empire and his peerage dates back to 1933. We don't do ads, but name the biscuit. Huntley and Palmer's, they're known for chocolate olivers. Ah. The rich, dark chocolate generously enrobed around a crisp, slow-baked biscuit chocolate. I hate to say it, but they are very good. (laughs) They are very good. Well, I've now just interrupted Tom. You should resume what you were saying. Tell us about Viscount Palmer. He's like a caricature of a hereditary peer in many ways. He is the only peer that we found who has a silver-plated staircase in his stately home. It's pretty rare, and he seems quite proud of it. 
He, of course, went to Eton, like 38 other hereditary peers, although he does admit that he was expelled from every school he went to because uh, he says he was too stupid. And that is a direct quote from him. He's a fascinating character. And what actually happened was that this family biscuit business was sold to another company, which was eventually merged with British American Tobacco. And Palmer himself actually has, well, not only does he have shares in British American Tobacco, but he is the convener of the House of Lords and Commons Cigar Club, which is sponsored by the Tobacco Manufacturers Association. And Obviously, there's one thing to take money from the tobacco industry and so on. But what we actually found was that he was quite vocal in the House of Lords. For example, I think he said that if smoking was outlawed in Britain, the entire UK economy would collapse. Would literally collapse. Literally collapse, yeah. He lobbied for looser regulations on tobacco post-Brexit and has generally spoken about the important contribution that tobacco makes to the exchequer. So he's been a steadfast advocate of tobacco in Parliament. He himself says that cigarette smoking is a disgusting habit and that he's a former cigarette smoker, now a cigar smoker. But he's obviously got these pecuniary interests in and around the tobacco industry and is thus rather unsurprisingly an energetic advocate of its interests. And for a bit of context, how does that compare? You know, if you were in the Commons, for example, and you were profiting from interests in tobacco, would you be able to lobby on behalf of the tobacco industry as easily as he has been? The big difference is that in the Commons, people can be held to more scrutiny by effectively by being voted out every five years or every general election. Mm. And I, I think that these kind of topics are now becoming increasingly toxic to voters who will pick up on these things. And were there any were there any in the list who you were almost impressed by, who you thought probably deserved a place there, but just hadn't got it the right way around? <laughs> One thing we were determined to do, obviously this always applies, but we wanted to be fair. There was no suggestion that the hereditary peers are kind of nefarious or bad people. We tried to make our conclusions rooted in data and analysis. I mean, there absolutely are steadfast custodians of British democracy who are among the hereditary peers. Lord Denham, the oldest peer in the chamber, I think he's in his 92nd year of life, is the only or one of the only people to have served under five different prime ministers. I think the first mm. of whom was Harold Macmillan. There are people who have served governments, who've run big charities, big organisations, big companies, are no doubt well equipped to sit in Parliament. The question is, how do they get there? And is it right that if you are indeed intellectually and politically able, that you're able to get this shortcut into Westminster, whereas everybody else who deems that they wouldn't make a half-decent representative has to put themselves before the British public. And there are some quite violent examples of these two principles clashing. So one of the most interesting cases was of Viscount Thurso or Lord Thurso. Used to be an MP. Used to be an MP, was an MP in Northern Scotland for the Lib Dems, sat in Charles Kennedy's shadow front bench for the Lib Dems. For a while, I'm sure he was the holder of the most dramatic moustache in Westminster Award. He still is. It's a serious <laughs> tash. He was, as with many other Lib Dems, was ousted in 2015. Uh, he's submerged in the SNP tsunami and lost his seat. And less than a year later, managed to get his way back into Parliament. But he did this 
not by saying to the electorate, I've lost your confidence, but I'm going to win it back. I'll stand in a by-election. It wasn't a fortuitous by-election. It was a hereditary period. The Lib Dem group died. And in that instance, any member of the British period, any holder of a title who self-identifies as Lib Dem or is Lib Dem can throw their hat into the ring and run to replace the deceased. And the people who vote in those contests are the existing members of the party political group in question and the existing hereditary members. So if it's Conservatives, that means because the numbers are fixed at the levels that they were at in 1999, that would mean there would be around 50 members of the Tory party um, who would vote. In the Lib Dem case, that's three people. So Viscount Thurso sailed back into Parliament with a stunning democratic achievement, which was winning 100% of the vote, which came in the form of three people who he knew saying, sure, come back in. Well, having looked at the problem so closely for a while now, what do you think the best solution would be? I think in some ways the obvious solution is there on a plate, really. You know, as we said earlier, the by-elections by which the hereditary peers' numbers are replenished whenever one of them dies are currently on pause due to coronavirus. I think the obvious solution is to keep them paused and the hereditary peers aren't replenished each time that one of them dies or leaves the chamber. I think that would probably be the easiest option. And that indeed is what Lord Grocott, who's tabled this bill several times already, twice to no avail, but he's trying again. This bill will pass. Uh, I say that with absolute confidence, but I occasionally wonder whether it'll be in my lifetime. That is essentially what he has been asking for. But of course, whether it happens is is a completely different question. The Sunday Times editorial called for an end to the hereditary principle in the House of Lords, but stopped short of calling for wider reforms. I think that it's sort of easy to say that the chamber as it stands is not in a great state and it's not a particularly brilliant advert to the world of what we all like to call the mother of all parliaments. But the real question, the interesting question, and the reason why we don't yet have any clear or imminent reform agenda is, well, what exactly is it that you're going to replace it with? Do you want something which is entirely appointed, but the appointment's done by a appointments commission, which looks for things like people's experience in the business and charitable sector? Do you want it to be elected? Do you want a set number of people from different regions of the UK? I made the comparison with the US Senate earlier. One of the quirks um, of the Senate is that every state no matter how big its population or no matter how small has two members. Would we do something similar where there's an equal number of Welsh, Scottish, Northern Irish and English representatives? I don't know. But nevertheless, there is at the moment a lot of intellectual imagination and hypothesising about what the chamber could look like. One person who spent a lot of time thinking about what a reformed second chamber might look like is Lord Salisbury. Although he's no longer in Parliament, he set up a cross-party constitution reform group. He thinks the House of Lords has many flaws, not just the hereditary peers, but also, as we've seen under Boris Johnson and David Cameron before him, the tendency for prime ministers to pack the Lords with their friends and party donors. I think all prime ministers do that if they've got the patronage. Patronage is a very important prime ministerial power. So Gordon Brown and Tony Blair did exactly the same thing, which is why I don't want a nominated, entirely nominated House of Lords. I think I wouldn't want to um, be ad hominem about members and all that. Uh, there are obviously some really good members, and some of them are actually hereditaries, funnily enough. 
but however, there are 800 members or something. You know, this is ridiculous. Uh, everybody agrees it's ridiculous, but also pretty well everybody agrees that we need a broader constitutional settlement. And because everything's connected to everything else, it seems a bit silly to take House Laws Reform in isolation. And in terms of what the final product should look like, I mean, how big would you want it to be for a start? This is why I think you can't take reform of the House of Lords in isolation. Mm. Because if you take my maximalist view and say that you could sit in the chamber, federal parliament, representing the whole United Kingdom, you want, I don't know, 400 or something. I don't think it matters much, so long as it's much smaller. But they, in my book, would be directly elected. But my colleagues on the Constitutional Reform Group would, some of them want an indirectly elected lot. Others think in terms of a directly elected lot. But nobody wants a House of more than 400, really. Always the difficulty of reforming the House floors is the House Commons doesn't want to lose powers to a more authoritative upper house. Do you see what I mean? And in the end, you know, if you look at the history of House Laws reform from the time my great-great-grandfather started advocating life peers in the 1870s and the only life peers were introduced with the judges right the way through until Tony Blair, this was a battle between the Lords and the Commons, who saw evidence, particularly in the 1911 crisis, in which the House Commons wrested power from the House of Lords. So why would the House Commons want to give power back to a reformed House of Lords? All their instincts would be against it. But of course, the House Commons needs reform badly. There are too many of them. But the truth of the matter is that thanks to our great technological age, the world is becoming much less hierarchical and more networked. Mm. And therefore, hierarchy doesn't really work, which is why I think you need to devolve a great deal more power down to uh, regions and local government. If you reform their lordships alone, you won't tackle the basic problem, which is we need a broader constitutional settlement and the upper chamber can't be treated in isolation because everything's connected to everything else. Does that make sense? And as you said right at the start, this is an issue that's been hiding in plain sight for a while. We're all aware of some of the anachronisms and anomalies in the House of Lords and the way it works. But having looked at it closely, having been reminded of all of that, did it change your view of how our democracy works? I suppose I was very surprised by how some of the tools that some of these hereditary peers were using to stop quite reasonable reform from happening in terms of things like filibustering, in terms of things like wrecking amendments. There are these sort of dark arts of politics that can be used, especially in the House of Lords, to stop any kind of meaningful change from happening. I think that's what stood out for me. I looked at our front page last Sunday and I saw the Lords emblazoned across the top, 47% having attended Eton. Then we had this story on the bottom left about David Cameron lobbying the Chancellor to help a company that he worked for. We had a story about Prince William and his plans for being king. And it just made me think that we're a country which we're still not quite sure of our identity and our history and we're kind of wrestling with these things. And I feel like the House of Lords is a kind of fascinating reflection on both the strengths and weaknesses of the British system and of British national identity. We have, to some people, it's, it's a glorious tradition. It's wonderful that we have this lineage going back, in some cases, a thousand years. We have this continuity, this kind of ever-evolving constitution, which nevertheless preserves some of the trappings of Britain's past. And yet to others, it's completely anachronistic, outrageous and undemocratic.
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Sunday Times Whitehall correspondent Gabriel Pogrand, senior data journalist Tom Calver, and the Marquess of Salisbury. You can read more of Gabriel and Tom's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. If there's a story that you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or if you have any thoughts about what you've just heard, then please do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. <laughs>